Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. In the mid-90s, the medical community was encouraged to treat pain more aggressively, so much so that pain became uh, referred to as the fifth vital sign. At the same time, the world was introduced to what we later learned was the most addictive pain pill in history, Oxycontin. As we struggle to come to grips with the opioid epidemic, it's vital that we reevaluate how we treat pain as a society. Here to talk about a new online educational patient safety initiative known as PAMI, that's Pain Assessment and Management Initiative, is Dr. Phyllis Hendry, who is the Professor of Emergency Medicine and Pediatrics the Assistant Chair of Research in the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Florida College of Medicine in Jacksonville, Florida. So, doctor, welcome. Thank you. Okay. So, tell us a little bit about what you've witnessed in Jacksonville as the opioid epidemic has evolved. Well, I think we've gotten away from seeing a lot of uh, overdoses and abuse from the oral opioids. You know, we had a big problem with pill mills in Florida. Um, Those were taken down several years ago, and unfortunately, what we're seeing now is a large number of deaths and overdoses from heroin and something called carfentanil. So as the supply of the oral opioids has gone away, you know, they're looking for other types of uh, much more severe types of medications that are being abused. So, you know, we are seeing a huge issue in our EMS community in the pre-hospital setting and in the emergency department, tragically, of, of young young adults and older adults and, and children dying from, from overdoses, but it, it tends to be more from uh, IV forms of the medication versus the oral. So pain management has really been called into question as a result of the opioid epidemic, and we talked prior to this, uh, this podcast, and you mentioned that really the, your initiative actually started even before the opioid epidemic began gaining the attention that it's gained here nationwide. So let's, let's talk, though, about the PAMI initiative and how you happen to get involved in it. Okay. Well, I started thinking about um, trying to improve pain, pain management probably around 2012, 2013. I had some family members with chronic pain issues. I also train emergency medicine and pediatric residents and fellows. And I just felt like there was a real void in pain education. I I also have a previous history of working as a pediatric hospice and palliative care medical director. And and pain's really very complex. There's not just this one recipe. There's different types of pain. There's acute pain, chronic pain, procedural pain. So I really felt we were, 
there was just a really lack of knowledge. And so I wanted to do something to address that. So I was fortunate to receive funding from an organization called the Florida Medical Malpractice Joint Underwriting Association. And that funding started in July of 2014. And it's a patient safety grant is what I received. Initially, it was a two-year grant, and then that was extended for another two years. So my initial plan was really to improve education among physicians, nurses, paramedics, other healthcare providers regarding pain management. And I wanted to focus in the emergency department, but certainly other specialties could use that. So, so that's how it started. And then about this time, you know, the whole opioid issue started, graining attention, and pain became just more and more important. The same time, the, the field of pain management has really grown. The, the research we have, the, the way pain develops, the whole fact that acute pain, if not treated adequately, can turn into chronic pain started. So there's just a lot more information there. So, so that's really how it started. And then it just morphed into this huge project with all types of spinoffs. Uh, initially, I wanted to just have some online educational modules that were free access. And then that grew into a dosing guide and discharge planning toolkit and, and numerous other PAMI projects. So maybe you can walk us through the program and tell us about how healthcare providers might be able to put this to use. So everything we offer is on a free access website. Um, it is on the University of Florida College of Medicine website, but it's free access. Anyone can use it. Uh, the first part are there are some online um, educational modules. There are the, each module is worth two hours of continuing education, and that could, again, be nurses, physicians, paramedics. We have some pharmacists that take it, respiratory therapists, and it's basics of pain, acute pain management, procedural sedation, non-pharmacologic management, pharmacologic management, pediatric, and then EMS or pre-hospital management. So, so that was the beginning. Then the second part was our dosing guide that we developed, and that's probably our most popular product. And again, all of these are free access. And we developed this because we found there was not one source you could go to. You would end up going to numerous websites, books. So maybe I'm working in the emergency department, and one minute I might be seeing a five-year-old with a fracture that needs pain management and sedation for fracture reduction. The next minute I'm seeing a 30-year-old with sickle cell pain, so chronic pain, um, next, I'm seeing a cancer patient. After that, I'm seeing someone with a diabetic with a neuropathic type of pain. So, you know, how could I treat all of that in a rapid manner? So we developed a multidisciplinary team, including pharmacists, pain medicine specialists, emergency physicians, pediatricians, and developed this dosing guide. And it has uh, adult and pediatric dosing, and it has, you know, IV medications, oral medications, topical medications, and as part of that, I also developed a stepwise approach to pain management, which, which I'll come back to. Then the next product came about, the feedback we got from nursing, which was that, you know, doctors, it's great. You see the patient, you discharge them, but the patient is still in pain and you're really not giving them a prescription for anything. What else can we do? And there are a lot of things that go into pain management. It's not simply the medication. So we came up with some... Uh, it's a, a discharge algorithm that you can go through with your patients to make sure they're safely discharged. So say I have sedated someone and given them pain management and then I'm discharging them, I certainly don't want them to go fall. I want them to know the side effects of their medication. So the discharge toolkit goes through that. And then we developed four videos that are geared towards patients 
that can be downloaded from a QR code and they can store it on their phone or play it when they get home. And those are pain medication safety, ways to manage chronic pain, preventing and relieving back pain, and then additional therapies to help manage pain. And those are more non-pharmacologic methods. And then our most recent project was developing um, a non-pharmacologic distraction toolkit, kind of nicknamed it Child Life 101 for emergency care providers. So it's really using non-pharmacologic treatment. There there are many other things um, that are available on the website. There's some case scenarios that can be used for teaching for nurses or physicians or paramedics or pharmacists. Well, it's just amazing all of the resources that you've developed there. I've got the pain management and dosing guide right in front of me, and that is just so extensive. Can you break it down a little bit further and tell us the importance of some of these uh, aspects of it, such as the principles of pain management and the analgesic ladder? So again, one is is to establish some realistic goals um, and, and just be clear with the patient, you know, decide together what your goals are to think about pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic options. And I always, you know, some of my colleagues have used a painting analogy. So when you're painting a house or a wall, you have a primer coat and everyone needs a primer coat. So your non-pharmacologic methods are really your primer coat. And then there are all types of other things you can do to treat pain. It might be a nerve block, it might be an oral medication. So those are your different paint colors. So these are discussions. This starts off with a discussion, the realistic pain goals, a discussion between doctor and patient? Exactly. And that's why I developed the stepwise approach because we're in a hurry when we're working clinically. We're under pressure for how many patients we can see in an hour. But each patient, they don't have the same recipe. It's like if you're cooking something, you have to have a different recipe. So, you know, you really have to look at what is it you're trying to accomplish. And often patients in pain have a lot of anxiety also, or they may have other problems. So you have to look at that. You have to look at the patient's developmental or cognitive level. So if you're dealing with maybe a young adult with autism or a child, that's a very different approach. What's going on with the family? What, what has been their past pain experience? Is this the first time they've had pain? Is this their 10th time to come in for this? So, you, you know, you have to look at all of those things and then take into account any other patient safety factors. So, for example, if you have an overweight patient, they're at higher risk for apnea. So you want to be very careful what medications you give them. And um, so there's just different ways to treat pain. And then monitoring is very important in determining that the patient is safe for discharge. So it sounds like, oh, I'm just going to treat pain. That's so easy. You know, I'm just going to give a little medication. That pain will go away. But it's much more complicated than that. So if you have a neuropathic type of pain and I'm treating you for another type of pain, then, then that's really not going to work. And I think that is just starting to come out in practice that, you know, there, there, there are different types of pathways and prescriptions for different types of pain. And you also include many different alternatives to opioids on your guide. Right. We have um, a guide that's been out for about a year and a half, and then we have a new version of the guide that will be coming out probably in the next week or two. And the, both guides have some alternatives, but the new guide will have more. So what you're seeing now in the United States is just this scrambling for everyone to find something else to treat pain with other than opioids because of all the problems we're seeing. So we're going back to old medications, for example, using lidocaine for migraine headaches instead of morphine or some type of opioid. Um, if you're having neck pain, you can do trigger point injections 
or using ice or cold or topical medications, acupuncture is even starting to be used in some emergency departments. Um, you know, music therapy, uh, types of exercise, cognitive therapy. So we're, everyone is looking for any option now um, you know, besides an opioid. Now, sometimes we have to use an opioid. You're in a bad car accident. You've been severely burned. We're certainly you know, not going to let you suffer. Sure. But then you have to be discharged at some point, and you have to have a game plan for how you're going to manage that pain when you get home. And it's, uh, it's more than just the medication. So, yeah. and in the new card, you're also going to have a reference to your educational pain videos, which are therapies, one video, which is therapies to help manage pain, another preventing and relieving back pain, that's got to be a popular one, ways to manage chronic pain, and pain medication safety. Right, and so we, we've developed some posters that can be put in a physician office or a waiting room, the emergency department. And especially the younger generation loves to do QR codes for everything. So you could use the website. You could, you know, use a QR code. So you could be given a flyer with this information on it, or you could download them while you're waiting to be discharged and then refer to these when you're home. So, for example, the preventing and relieving back pain has some exercises you can do. Of course, you know, everything needs to be coordinated with your, your current, you know, primary health care provider. But it's just some other things you can think about if you are taking a pain medication, just some things to be aware of. So this would appear to be something that every single ED could put to use, and they could put it to use right away. Exactly. And that's, again, I want to just stress, this is free access. It, it's ideal for, for teaching hospitals, educational programs, but it's great for more private community hospitals also. So it can be used for education, for medical students, nursing students, paramedic, any type of students. It can be used for ongoing education, and it can be used for daily clinical practice. So, so the whole goal was to make it easy for you to provide appropriate pain management. Sure. So what should a healthcare provider do before beginning to put, you know, PAMI to work in their practice? Is there any prep work that they would have to do at all? Well, there's a lot of information, so it can be overwhelming. So the first thing I would do is probably survey their, their staff or their leadership and find out, you know, what are the biggest problems we're having? What would we like to focus on first? Is it patients complaining they're not getting enough information? Are we ordering the wrong, incorrect dose of medication? Are we having adverse events after a medication? And then just pick one of these projects that you want to implement and start with, you know, sending the material to your your providers, your staff. Uh, we do things um, in the morning. We call them huddles with our nurses where they huddle for 10 minutes. And sometimes we'll go by their huddles and just say, hey, here's the pain tip of the day. So it depends on what your setup is. Sometimes I'll, you, know, you may have an hour lecture or talk about it. We also have some case scenarios you can use for discussion. Or it may just be, here's your pain tip of the week. So they'll have to, that's the good thing about this. You can take this and adapt it for whatever your particular need is. So um, back to the dosing guide, I'm just infatuated by that. I mean, there's just so much information here. Uh, so maybe you've uh, outlined the seven pain management steps. So tell us a little bit more about those steps and why they're so important. Okay, so I'll give you, so the first one I called, and I just kind of made this up, was the situation checkpoint. So what I would see in the doctors I'm training is maybe, you know, there's a drug we use when we're doing a procedure and you really just kind of need to 
make them still for a while, almost kind of, quote, knock them out for 10 minutes while you're suturing them or doing whatever. But you go to use that same medication because they're there for pain alone. But you need to use a lower dose when you're doing that. So I thought, you know, the first thing you need to think about is what, what am I trying to do here? Am I treating just pain? Is it pain and anxiety? Do I need them to be still, too, like they can't move, so I need to sedate them? You know, are they going to get a CAT scan? Am I, am I doing some type of procedure? So that's step one. Step two is a developmental and cognitive checkpoint. So you're going to approach someone, you know, obviously a five-year-old differently than a 35-year-old. And then next is the family dynamic. And th this is probably more of a pediatric issue, but the parents, the family, but it's with adults too, the caregiver that's there, if they're very anxious and not being supportive, it makes the patient anxious and it makes them, you know, very difficult to, to care for. And you'll see pain is very much affected by by culture, by past experiences, there's a huge genetic component to pain. We metabolize medications differently based on our genetics. We react to pain differently based on genetics. So that's the family dynamic checkpoint. And then the facility checkpoint, it, it depends on what's going on. So I'll give you an example. One day I came into work and we had three children that needed painful procedures. So if we do what's called a procedural sedation, that's a one-on-one -on -one nursing care. And it just, you know, it's a lot of time. So we've got to find something else to do. So I went into one family's room. The child had, I think, a dog bite to the lip or a laceration. And I said, could you work with me as a team? And could we try to do some distraction and non-pharmacologic treatment and some topical anesthetic versus kind of putting her to sleep to do this procedure? And they said yes. And they were very calm and very helpful and very supportive. And we were finished with the procedure in 15 minutes. Or if I had done the other option, it would have been probably an hour, and then you have to monitor them for an hour after that. So that's an example of Big you, know, you kind of need to look at yeah. what else is going on. Sure. And then uh, patient assessment is really, you know, you take your physical exam and their risk factors and their mm -hmm. history, and you have to take that information to try to determine what's the best medication, what's the best recipe to use. And then, you know, management is, you know, you're you're doing the procedure, you're using your pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic ingredients, and then monitoring discharge checkpoint is you're reassessing them, you're determining can they go home, are they safe to go home, how are they getting home, Very helpful. what is going to be their plan, what's their pain plan when they go home. Yeah. So you mentioned it a little bit earlier, but I want to come back to the distraction toolbox. Uh, you sent that over to me in that care package, and that really grabbed my attention, and, and in fact, uh, I uh, met with and, and shared it with Dr. Sarah uh, Freebert, a distinguished uh, director of pediatric palliative care at Akron Children's Hospital uh, here in the Akron area. And uh, Dr. Freebert was, was really blown away by it and uh, uh, everything that your, uh, your team developed there. So let's talk just a little bit about what it would take, including rough costs, for another healthcare uh, provider to adopt the practice of using a distraction toolkit for their patients. Okay, well, this is actually my favorite project of everything in PAMI. This is, is like my baby. I love this project. So, uh, you know, I started this partly like larger children's hospitals will have what you call a child life specialist that will come in and maybe distract patients with things. You're not trying to trick them, but the brain usually can't focus on two things at one time. So often you can, you can distract them, you know, while you're doing a painful procedure. And we have some kind of neurocognitive type things we do, and then we have some physical type things we do, like, you know, applying ice versus versus music. 
or there's so many things you can do with an iPhone and an iPad now. There's all types of apps for guided imagery and things like that. So, so the toolbox, I mean, it doesn't have to be a box. It can be a bag, a box. You may have enough room to have a cart or a yours whole is, room with these things in it. Yours is but really cool, we, though. You've got that plastic little box. It's like a, right. a small tackle box for yeah. a fisherman or something. And we did that because we wanted something small that ambulances could also use, and this has hmm. a lock you can put on it. And one of the things we have to be very careful about is I may go give something to a 10-year-old, but if they have a 2-year-old sibling in the room, I have to be careful about small parts, infection control. So we, we have a variety of things that are in the toolbox, and then you can add things. But we had a great response from everyone we contacted. When we told them what we were doing, we were offered some great pricing. So, for example, the toolboxes, you know, I just found them on Amazon, and then we wanted to get, like, two or 300 of them, and they were like, oh, well, we can't do that. We'll have to send you to the manufacturer. I believe it was called Stack on Products, but we emailed them and told them what it was for, and they said, oh, you can have it at cost. So we ended up, you know, getting the boxes for a very low cost. There's something in the packet called Wiki Sticks, and I actually learned about those. I actually was at a restaurant, and they had Wiki Sticks for the children. I'm like, oh, these are great. They're non-toxic. They can make things with them. So I we notified the company, called them. And they said, oh, we'll give you a nonprofit rate. And we got, you know, a 1,000 of them for just a, a great price. So once they knew what we were using them for, they were very cooperative. Probably the thing I use the most is we have a little animal in each one, and it could be a pig or a frog or a lion, and it's a light, and it makes a noise. So I keep my pink pig with me all the time, and I use it just for general assessment. But if I'm seeing a child in pain, so for example, we had a little girl and we were suturing a laceration. I said, you know, do you want to meet my pet pig? And could you hold my pig for me? Could you take care of my pig for me? <laughs> and instead of grabbing my hand or crying, could you make the pig oink? And they're like, you know, pressing the light in your face and making it oink, oink. And then I just say, you know, when I'm finished, the pig needs to go help another little girl or the pig needs to go take a nap. And they usually give it back. And I just use some antiseptic foam and use it on the next patient. So, again, with those also, we, we found different vendors and not everyone negotiated, but definitely if you buy in bulk, and then it works. And then what I would recommend is find, um, you know, nonprofit organization, men, women's clubs, um, restaurants, and and see if they will, you know, help you fund some of these items. Yeah, that's great. So, that's great. That yeah. that's so inventive and creative, and that's really neat. And almost everyone has a cell phone or an iPad now, so. The other thing we have, when you go to our website, we, we did a pilot course for this in April. It was a three-hour pilot um, where we got you know feedback on everything. And the, all the materials from that course are on our website. And we developed a list of apps for and music for distraction, for guided imagery. And so you could even you know show those to the parents or to the patient you know if they want to try to use them. You know, we also promote using ice packs if necessary. Um, we have some wands, and the adults even like the wands. You kind of turn them back and forth, and you find items in the wand. So you have to choose your toolbox item based on, you know, the developmental stage of the patient and what they're having done. Outstanding. So um, that brings me to another topic, and that's advocating for your loved ones. So when parents go to the ER and, you know, their, their child is injured, they take them into the ER, uh, I understand that you've developed kind of some guidelines and you've got some, some coaching that, you know, to pass along to some parents and you've done some interviews on this. What 
kind of nuggets that can you pass along to some of our listeners on that? Well, I think the you know the first thing is just to be the advocate for your you know for your child or your loved one and ask the the doctor or nurse healthcare team you know what can I do to help them. Ask if they have any distraction measures or a child life specialist or music or if you're allowed to do that, and that helps them feel like you know they're doing something. It's very hard to be just sitting there helplessly watching your loved one in pain. And, you know, we're obviously very busy, so it's nice if you can be part of, part of the team. And, you know, music therapy, there's studies that show music therapy is very effective. So anything that I think the parent can do to, to help us keep the patient calm. And also, you know, ask questions. And one of the things we teach is to, you know, by, for EMS and emergency departments is to give the patient or the parent orienting information because uh, anxiety really makes the pain worse. So it's really nice for them. if you just have an idea of, okay, you're in a car accident. This is what we're going to need to do. You know, you're going to have a chest X-ray. We're going to do this. The trauma surgeon's going to see you. Um, you know, here are your options for pain management. We're going to put an ice pack on this. So just kind of letting them know what the game plan is. And if someone's not doing that, you know, just you know, don't be demanding, but just just ask the question. And, and sometimes that just kind of calms everyone down to have some orienting information about what to expect. Very good. Are there any other programs that you've been exposed to that you found are making a difference in the opioid epidemic that you care to share with us? You know, I think what we're seeing now is there's just this mass frenzy of everyone trying everything. And so we're making a lot of changes at one time. So sometimes it's hard to tell what's really working and, you know, what's not working. Um, I did... Uh, speak at an annual meeting called Pain Week with Dr. Alexis LaPietra, who's at St. Joseph's in New Jersey, and they, they started the ALTO program, Alternatives to Opioids. It's not really completely opioid-free, but just thinking before you give an opioid, is there another option? So I think that's, um, you know, a good way to look at things. Um, but I can't think of, you know, a specific program. I think uh, everyone is really trying to tackle this problem, and it really kind of caught us off guard. What final thoughts would you care to share with our listeners about the opioid epidemic and about what you've learned? I would just like to say that PAMI has really been uh, a team process. It's not all, you know, my work. I have a fantastic team I work with. I have a co-investigator, Dr. Sophia Sheikh, who is an adult emergency physician, a toxicologist, Colleen Kalnich, who's an educational specialist, a project manager, Raina Davidman, and several other employees, Taylor Miller, Michelle Lott, an awesome administrative assistant, Marvelyn McFarlane, and they all together help me, you know, put PAMI together. So I just want to be sure to stress that this is not a one-man show, and we also have collaborators across the state with state and national organizations that we partnered with, such as Florida College of Emergency Physicians, Florida Hospital Association, American Pain Association. So we, you know, we've had a lot of help and a lot of in-kind support from our university. So just want to recognize that it's, it's, a, it's a team, not just me. Well, once again, Doctor, I'd like to thank you. We've been joined today by Dr. Phyllis Hendry, who is the Professor of Emergency and Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Florida College of Medicine in Jacksonville, Florida. And she and her team is all, have also developed the PAMI, which is a pain assessment and management initiative that is making a difference across our country. 
in the opioid epidemic. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.